know, when we speak to couples about how their marriages came about, what things were like at the beginning, most of them will talk about how good things were. But as it goes in most cases, the bliss at whatever level it was experienced, slowly or sometimes even abruptly, transforms into pain and power struggle. And the question is like, what happened? It was going so well. Now let's not talk about the surprises that can be discovered after commitment, you know, the secrets that were kept before the marriage. That's a whole topic unto itself. Instead, let's talk about the more common situation, the one that describes the typical and expected marital journey. Here's how it goes. It all begins with an experience, a state of the relationship. Clinically, we call it fusion, but conventionally, people refer to it as romantic love. It's when we feel so good to be with each other. It's a state that sounds beautiful. It looks beautiful. It feels amazing. Signs of romantic love would be things like, you know, we think the same. We're almost convinced that we have mental telepathy. We feel the same about, about everything. And we even do the same. We, we eat the same breakfast. We enjoy the same lunches. We both exercise. It's like an amazing thing. It gets to the point where this feeling creates a sense of invincibility. Like we're never going to have problems. I mean, how could we? We think the same, feel the same, act the same. We're totally in sync. Everything is blissfully perfect. Now, I know I'm being a little bit extreme, but try to imagine it in various iterations. Now, this excitement actually extends even to differences where somebody might say, wow, you're so quiet. I love that about you. Now, what's that all about? Well, the answer is because I myself was never able to do that. And when I see it in you, it's as if I just acquired it. You see, because this state, this romantic love comes along with the paradigm of relationships. Connection is about being one. And therefore, it's you and me as if we've become a whole new entity. When I say you're my better half, half, half of a whole because we're really only one. So when I marry you, I get everything you have. When you marry me, you get everything I have. So I now become this person who has this strength of quietness. And it's exciting. But this mindset of oneness at the level we just described it may feel amazing when you're in romantic love. But it's a great distortion. It creates a lot of problems. And it's unsustainable. Well, let's talk about why it's unsustainable. See, it's because you're not one. Two people cannot be one. As long as you have two minds, two hearts, two bodies, two histories, two genders, two personalities, you're not going to be the same. No matter how much it looks that way, you're going to be very, very different from each other. So if you convince yourself that what makes you right for each other are your similarities, there's going to be a very big wake-up call as you start to see the differences coming in in a fast and furious way. And that happens not too long after the couple gets married. So what happens at that point is a fear. As long as we're holding on to this idea that we need to be one, and now we're seeing cracks in this foundation, many cracks, the panic sets in. And then we have a need to be able to save this marriage by forcing fusion, forcing us to think the same and feel the same and do the same. And because I feel so strongly about the way that I see things, I'm going to be the one to say, listen, we're one and I'm the one. And I fight to save this marriage. But then again, the other is saying the same thing. I know what I'm saying is right. And in order to save this marriage, I need to make sure that you buy into what I'm saying. That's the power struggle. And so what happens is the reactions and the panic that go on when the romantic stage is falling apart, the couple experiences a lot of pain. In fact, the degree to which it was great then is the degree to which it hurts now. The pain of power struggle often matches the degree of pleasure that was experienced in romantic love. Now, while this power struggle is happening, you'll hear a couple say things like, if I would do it, why doesn't he do it? Now, hold on a second. If I would do it, why doesn't he do it? What's the connection? You're one person and he's another. But yet, the fused way of thinking says, we should both be able to do it. If I could do it, why can't he do it? 
If I saw it, why didn't he see it? All of these statements, all these beliefs, all these expectations are based upon the fused model. And that's why the distortions are so painful. So instead of welcoming differentiation, the couple stays stuck with the pain. And it can last for decades if it doesn't get resolved, if the paradigm isn't shifted. And so therefore our goal is to graduate from fusion and to welcome the state of differentiation. Except that we're not one, let's say beyond the metaphysical level. You know, we're two different people in how we think and feel and do things. Let the other person be and recognize that romantic love had its place. However, while fusion brought us together, differentiation will keep us together. So we've got to be open to learning how to make room for and not shut down the other person's reality. Now, here's a broad generalization, which might take some time to appreciate, but I'll put it out there anyway. And it goes like this. Almost all relationship challenges can be traced to some aspect of being fused, undifferentiated. Think about that, and we'll come back to that as we go along. And so therefore, today's competency is to differentiate, to learn how to make room for an other. Now, remember, making room for an other also comes along with the ability to accept. Making room is I accept the differences of the other. That's our competency for today. Now, I can go straight to the exercise to show how this is done. But because this piece is so fundamental, the concept of making room for another is at the root of the most fundamental beliefs about marriage, love, and relationships. It's worth spending a little bit of time creating a philosophical foundation for it. And so here it is in three basic assumptions. Assumption number one, we were created in the image of God, which means that we were created to emulate him. If we're in his image, it must be that we need to act like him. And therefore, we need to act godly. That's the goal of life. But what does that mean specifically? How do we act godly? So step number two, that our tradition says that God created the world in order to give. And so based on the formula in step one, if we're here to emulate God and God is a giver, then we necessarily live to give. That's our highest calling. And it makes sense, by the way, because God himself, when he created a woman, said that it wasn't good for man to be alone. Now, why not? Because you really can't give when there is no other to give to. Which means that marriage now becomes the first and foremost institution that was created for giving. It's the ultimate setting for ultimate giving. Now, here's where it gets fun. What does it take to be a giver? I mean, what are the dynamics of giving? Or maybe more specifically, how did God set up the world in order to be the ultimate giver? And therefore, by extension, how should we set up our relationships so that we too can be givers? So here's step three. Now, fasten your seatbelts, because we're going to take a very short plunge into a deep Kabbalistic idea of which I know very little about. And it's all contained in one word, the concept of tzimtzum. Now, that's the Hebrew word for constriction. What does it mean? And what's so deep about that? And of course, we're speaking about this in human terms in ways that we can understand it. So here goes. Imagine a circle which represents the entire reality. And therefore, before creation, you put God in the middle of that, he fills the entire world. But God says, you know, I want to be able to give, but I need an other to give too. So he, so to speak, constricted himself, making room for creation. He created space in that big circle, and within that space, he put all of the elements of creation, including man, who is the centerpiece of creation. And he says, man, I just gave you space. I've created the possibility of a relationship between us. Within that space, I've given you a brain so you can think. I've given you a heart so you can feel. I've given you a body to be able to behave. Within that space is where you have your individuality. You can choose how to behave. You want to emulate me and be like me and be a giver? That's great. If you don't, well, that's going to be something we have to deal with. He gives to us our freedom by giving us space. He allows us to be who we are and relates to us based upon the choices that we make. 
Now, to speak more about symptom as it relates to creation, you could speak to your local Kabbalist. But in terms of our takeaway regarding relationships, we have an incredibly important model, which is that the dynamics of giving requires there to be an other. And we have to take the circle of our life, which has us in the middle, and make room in that space for others to exist so that we can have a relationship with them. We have to be able to have a space over there so someone can be in there with their own mind and their own heart and their own body and to be able to make their own choices. And that we relate to them based upon who they are and not based on who we are. Now, just to drive this point home, let's describe the journey that we all took in order to get to adulthood and marriage. Baby's born, breaks free from the womb, a freedom fighter from the very beginning. Now, when that infant breaks out of the womb and he joins his circle of reality, there's only one person in there, and that's the infant himself. See, because the infant has no ego boundaries, which means nothing exists outside of themselves for their own sake. A baby's hungry, he cries. He's tired, he cries. Any needs he has, he cries, with the expectation that the world will service his needs. There's been no story in recorded history where an infant who had woken up his mother three times in a single night and decided the fourth time that he wasn't going to cry when he got hungry because he said to himself, let us sleep a little bit. I'll tolerate the discomfort of hunger. Doesn't happen. Now, no fault of the infant. He wasn't given the capacity to think that way. He was born programmed to have no ego boundaries. And as that infant gets a little bit older, he starts to realize that there are other people in the world. Hopefully he gets to learn that no is no. And even though he wanted something very badly, even though he tantrumed, but at the end of the day, the parents said no, and therefore he had to deal with another reality. But an interesting thing happens then, maybe more in the Western culture than anywhere else. Teenage years set in. And there's some kind of regression to the infantile states of no ego boundaries. Suddenly you'll find teenagers asking for a car, and when the parents say, I'm sorry, you can't have it, the teenager does not accept it. Now hold on a second. Someone else has a need. Yeah, but no one exists outside of my reality. My circle has only me in it. And if that teenager has not learned how to make room for others, he is the only person in his own world. No other thoughts and feelings or needs will count. This developmental teenager, who, by the way, could be someone whose age has the word teen at the end of it, 17, 18, 19, or it could be someone who's 40, 50 years old and hasn't graduated from that mindset that the world is all with me at the center, that person can't be in a committed relationship because the step needed to engage in a healthy relationship is to begin to be mitzamtzim, make room for an other. That's the challenge. And the extent to which I can make room for another is the extent to which I'll be able to demonstrate my acts of giving and by extension, expressing my love for them because giving and loving are synonymous with each other. And so we've got to make sure we've achieved that last developmental milestone even before we contemplate getting married. Can I be mitzamtzim? And to what extent can I do that? And that sets us up for the that's okay workup. And basically, it's a record of all the differences you've discovered between you and your spouse. And so the first column will say, I am, for instance, an extrovert, and my spouse is an introvert. And so first column says extrovert, second column says introvert, and the third column is always going to be the same. It's going to be the words, and that's okay. So altogether it reads, I'm an extrovert, my spouse is an introvert, and that's okay. We didn't have to be the same. It's okay. And to the extent to which we allow that to exist in our world is the extent to which we've been mitzamtzim. We've made room for otherness. And now we relate to the other based on their introversion and not based on our extroversion. We're sensitive to their needs and how they do things, even though it's very different than ours. That's a giver. That's godly. But that acceptance of differences is the first level of acceptance. Believe it or not, some people have a hard time even accepting differences that are not necessarily indicators of anybody being less than 
Just the fact that I'm an extrovert, I want people to be extroverted. Those are the easier ones to accept. But we also say that you need to accept differences that represent deficits. So for example, I'm very good at communicating, and my spouse is not. Of course, that's a judgment, so we're not so sure that you really know what you're talking about when you say it. But if that's what you think, then state it on the page. It's your own work right now. Say, I see myself as being a good communicator. My spouse is not. Now the challenge is going to be, can I say that's okay? So I say, what do you mean that's okay? It's not okay. You've got to know how to communicate to be in a relationship. So it's not okay that my spouse doesn't know how to communicate. Okay, I hear that. But let's say one thing here. When I say something is not okay, unacceptable, it's important that I get an impartial person to agree that what I'm saying is accurate. Because sometimes things are not okay for us because we can't deal with it, not because it's inherently unacceptable. So for our purposes, we're going to say, this kind of thing, we can stretch to make it okay. We can be mitzamtim and make even more space to accept not just differences that are just different ways of doing things, but equally as healthy as mine, but even to accept deficits. That takes an extra dose of tzimtzum, of making room for otherness. But how do I do that? How do I make that something that I can say okay about? So on one level, we say, listen, you know you're not perfect, and you know you want to be accepted even for your deficits. You accept your humanity, accept someone else's too. You know you're going to get people who've got the strengths and weaknesses. Embrace their magnificence together their vulnerabilities. It's just part of being in a human relationship. But practically speaking, really, how do I say it's okay? So let me give you another way to understand the implications of that's okay. So imagine I have two people driving in a car. They're going to a very important meeting, and suddenly they get a flat tire. And it's pretty clear that they're not going to be able to make it to this meeting. So you have two reactions. One of the guys in the car starts to freak out. So I can't believe it. We missed the meeting. This isn't crazy. This is not okay. And the other one might be somebody who's very different, who might say something like, it's okay. It's okay. Now, what does that mean? Is it possible for someone to say that's okay when they have a flat tire and they're going to be missing an important meeting? What does that person mean when they say that's okay? Now, if they're living at a very high level of belief and faith, they'll say, whatever God does is, is good, this is good. If he has another way to say that's okay, I know this is not what I want. I know this is a challenge, but we're going to make it work. It's someone who understands how to be resourceful. We won't have this meeting, but it's okay. It's, it's going to work out. That's the that's okay. Yeah, it's going to make the relationship a little more challenging, maybe a lot more challenging, but that's okay. We'll deal with it. We'll figure it out. We'll learn skills, learn strategies. We'll figure out how to make this work. So think about it at the very least that your that's okay says, we're going to make it work. And that's the assignment, to write down as many differences as you can and be able to say that's okay to as many as you can. And again, there'll be things that are completely not okay. If there's physical abuse, something very concrete that obviously is not okay, that any third person would agree that this is not okay, we don't say that's okay to that. But there are so many other differences that we deny that if we had the capacity to make room for otherness, we'd be able to include that as well as being part of the space I'm willing to give to the other. So list as many differences and get encouraged that the more differences you find doesn't make you less of a couple. That would only be true if you had a fused mindset. But when you have a differentiated mindset, you understand that the more differences you find, the more opportunities you have to give space, accept, be godly, and be the ultimate giver.